0: Uh, a study that uh, in a portion of Scripture that the church has historically called the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's, it's called the Lord's Prayer not because it is the, uh, the exclusive way to pray. It's not the only way that Jesus prayed, but it is the template that Jesus has given to his disciples to pray. When asked, how should we pray, how teach us to pray, and even in his instruction... He says, pray, pray like this, and he has given us this template. It's called the Lord's Prayer, but it probably would be better labeled uh, the, uh, the Disciples' Prayer, uh, but I really don't have much hope of changing anybody in the churches, much less the church universal in all these years. So uh, we look again to uh, the Lord's Prayer this morning. Uh, our focus will be on verse 10, but we'll be reading for context uh, beginning uh, in uh, verse 7. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. With the word of our God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this, your word, we pray that your spirit would speak to us, even as he had inspired uh, those who recorded your words. Uh, we pray that you would make these words uh, that may be familiar to many uh, alive, alive, and at work within our hearts as well as in our minds, and that the effect of this would be evident in the world. We pray that you would renew us and use us as your agents, that we might bring the hope of the kingdom of God to our neighbors and even to the nations. Lord, be honored, be glorified. Hallowed be your name as we give attention to the word that Jesus spoke. To you be all praise and glory, we pray, in this church, your church throughout the world, and on all your disciples, we pray in the incomparable name of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer and our King, amen. amen. Several years ago, researchers discovered something that was uh, a little bit of a, a surprise, a pleasant surprise to them. Uh, they discovered uh, in sections uh, sections of artwork in a 15th century uh, 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 they discovered a, a mural that was begun in the 15th century uh, by Renaissance painter Leonardo da Vinci hidden underneath 16 layers of whitewash in a castle in Spain. Here's what the, uh, the article uh, read. Uh, the mural covers the, the vault walls of, of, the, of a castle in Milan. Uh, restoration work uh, unveiled extra sections uh, of the original work, which depicts a, a garden um, uh, and, uh, in the, of, of 16 mulberry trees uh, bound together uh, by a golden knotted rope. Uh, the work is part of a, a tree-filled uh, decoration that was commissioned in 1498 by the Duke of Milan, and was executed by Leonardo, who at the time was the court artist. It's possible that the mural was left incomplete, as Milan was conquered by the French, who stormed the castle in 1499. In 1706, when Milan was under Austrian rule, The castle became a soldier's barracks and then when it was turned into a stable, the walls were covered with abundant layers of whitewash. And so those who were then seeing chips in the the whitewash saw something was behind, they began scraping away and eventually, and not too long ago, just a, a few years ago, realized, hey, there's something that is significant beyond that. Begin chipping further and further away, looking at the painting, looking at the history, they realized there was a tremendous treasure that was beneath the surface and there's apparently great hope Uh, that the painting, the mural, will be able to be recovered and restored uh, and enjoyed fully. And and as I was reminded of that story, kind of the reason that it it struck me is it, it reminds us that sometimes, if we don't look below the surface, we can miss out a treasure that is buried underneath. And I think that is particularly true of this section of scripture that we call the the Lord's Prayer. It's possible for people, possible for any of us, uh, to recite this prayer without giving any significant thought to what the words mean and what it is that we are praying. Some people pray this Lord's Prayer out of ritual, just kind of rote just they recite it. It's just part of the tradition in the church. Some churches, it's, it's recited and declared every single week. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, certainly not a bad thing for it to be a tradition and for us to pray uh, this prayer as part of our worship service, although the prayer itself was never designed to be delivered this way. It's a template. It gives us an outline of how we're to pray, beginning our focus on, on the glory of God and who it is, and particularly... That we are reminded that He is our Father who is in heaven, which is the basis of the hope that we have in everything that comes afterwards. And then, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we began this study, there is an incredible brilliance in the way that this prayer is laid out. It parallels the, the Ten Commandments. Those of you who are students of the Bible know that in the Ten Commandments, we're told that there are two tables. Two tables of the law. The first four commandments, which is the the fourth table, is the the, the relationship to, uh, to God, and it's all about God's glory. You have no other gods, and don't take God's name in vain. It's about the orientation and the relationship with God, and, and then the second table, the second six, uh, sec, the, the sixth uh, last commandments, are about our living life in this world. Well, the Lord's Prayer is set up in the same way, essentially two tables after the address, which is our Father in heaven. There's two tables there. The first three petitions are related to the glory of God. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the second table parallels the last six, the second table of, of the 10 commandments. It's how we are trusting God and for our provision in our day-to-day lives. And there's a great significance in each one of these petitions. But if we only recite these words without stopping and giving thought to the significance, we miss a potential treasury of wisdom and implications for our lives. And maybe no more than these these two petitions that we're looking at this morning. Is that true? Now it's clear that we have two distinct petitions, but there's a tremendous overlap between these two petitions, which is why we're looking at, at them all at one time today. But there are two distinct petitions. One is your kingdom come. We're called to pray for God's kingdom to come. And then second, we are praying for God's will to be done on earth just as it is being done in heaven. Those are two distinct things, but they are related. And they are related in a certain way because when God's kingdom comes in fullness, when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, well, then God's will is going to be done on earth just as it is done in heaven. And so we can look at them uh, as one big piece, but there is a a clear distinction. Maybe to help us to understand the distinction between the two, the first petition, your kingdom come, when we're praying that, what we are, are praying is that we and everyone in the world would recognize that God has the right to set the rules. God has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. God has the right to determine what is good and what is bad. God has the right to say this is of value and this is not worth your life's investment. God even has the right to determine what is the path to life and the pathway to death. When we say your kingdom come, we are saying, God, we want to recognize and we want everyone to recognize that you have all authority. And the reason is because you're God and we're not. Your kingdom come is the establishment of God's kingdom fully on earth, just as it is in heaven. The second one is dealing more with the outcomes. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. While the first might be authority, uh, the the second is the actuality. It's it's the outcomes. What God wants, we're praying, is what is going to be real. And we're wanting to see that, not just someday, somewhere in heaven, but we wanna see that actuality now and for it to increasingly be true, until it is completely true, and it is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth at Christ's return. And yet, as we look at this, we we really need to stop and pause for a moment, because one of the things that Jesus says that should be our prayer is. One of the important things that we pray, not just when we pray this prayer, but as part of our, our regular practice of prayer, is praying for God's kingdom to come, for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And the subject of God's kingdom is is really it is so massive. There is so much uh, that could be said and, and should be said uh, that it's rather daunting to begin teaching about it, because no matter what we say this morning, it's going to be uh, incomplete and in some ways inadequate, but my hope is that we will turn our attention and have some idea as we leave as what it is that Jesus is calling us to pray, and that we would have a desire to do so, Uh, and that not only we would have the desire, but that we would do so, making that our, our regular practice. And while the idea of the kingdom is broad, it is also important that we talk about it. Because if we're going to pray for the kingdom of God to come, it might be a good idea if we have some idea of what it is that we're asking God to do and what it is that we're asking God to make real. And so as we look at this passage today, we want to get an understanding of what the kingdom is, what it is that we're asking God for, And in dealing with certain challenges that we may have in our prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth, even as it is evident in heaven. So let me begin with a question. When you think of this whole idea of God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, what comes into your mind? Some of you are familiar with the the film, A Field of Dreams, and the scene, the very last scene of that movie is an interaction between the the primary character, um, Ray Kinsella, um, who is uh, played by Kevin Costner, and his father, who had passed away a number of years ago. In the interaction, his father, who has come back and is young and in his youth, and he asks... Ray Kinsella, who plowed his cornfield to make a baseball field for a bunch of dead players um, to come back and play, ghosts. His father asks him, is this heaven? To which Costner says, no, it's Iowa. <laughs> but then he has his attention, and so Kevin Costner's character asks him, is there a heaven? And his father says, oh yeah. It's the place where dreams come true. And it grabs people's attention, it's one of the things that uh, I think resonates with people in, in the movie. One is it's an affirmation that there is a heaven, there is something that is better than what we have here, uh, something that we can look forward to, and the whole idea it's where our dreams come true, uh, that just kind of resonates with most people. And One of the reasons it resonates and it's appropriate is because there's a lot of truth in that. There is a sense in which it is the place where dreams come true, but there's another sense in which it, it's kind of trite. Uh, the idea that heaven is where dreams come true, well, what if my dreams are different than your dreams? And what if we dream about the same thing, but only one of us can have it? I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's just the idea that heaven is whatever we imagine it to be. It, it, the reality is the Scripture says the kingdom of God has certain characteristics. The kingdom of God is a particular reality uh, that is not dependent on what you and I think or what you and I dream about. So what is the kingdom of God, and what is the, the kingdom of, of God like? Let me quote J.I. Packer first, who kind of dispels part of the Field of Dreams notion of what the kingdom of God is like, because J.I. Packer makes this statement. He says, God's kingdom is not a place, but rather a relationship. It exists wherever men and women enthrone Jesus as master of their lives. Now, that's an important concept for us to consider. First and foremost, heaven is not a place per se, doesn't mean that there is not a real heaven. That heaven doesn't exist. It means that it is not in its essence primarily a place, a destination. You have vocations that you may have gone to this summer, or you're going to go. You're going to a particular place. If you are not there, you are. If you're here, you're not there. Heaven is not a place in that way, because heaven is a different plane. It's a it transcends. It is a place in in one sense where God resides in the heavens, but that is in a different plane. But the way that Packer also points out the teaching of scripture is, but it also exists anywhere where men and women have enthroned Jesus Christ as the master of their lives. And so while it is in one sense elsewhere, it is also present to the extent that you and I have trusted in Jesus Christ. We recognize not only is he our savior, but he is our king as well. And that as Christ is reigning and shaping our lives, the kingdom of God is present. The scripture teaches of the kingdom of God as being both a future reality and a present reality. It is something that is going to come in the future at the return of Jesus Christ, but it is also present in our hearts now as we trust in Jesus Christ. And if it is present in our hearts, then our hearts shape our lives. We do what our hearts dictate for us to do. Then the kingdom of God is a reality as it's lived out by believers in any community throughout the world. And so heaven is not, uh, the kingdom of heaven is not necessarily just a a distinct place, but it is a a relationship. It's the relationship that we have with God. The definition that I've used for a number of years for the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is the, uh, the loving rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts and the lives of God's people everywhere. Another definition that uh, I I read, and I I wrote the definition down, but I didn't write who the commentator was that I got it from, so it's mine now. Um, That's my caveat of plagiarizing by claiming I'm not plagiarizing here uh, at the same time. Uh, But the, the kingdom of God is the loving rule and reign of God over every area of life. It's related to how do we relate to God and his reign in our lives. That he takes the priority, but he also sets the rules. He sets the agenda. He determines what the priorities are. And as we submit our lives to that, as we conform our lives to that, then Christ is reigning and the kingdom of God is alive within us and then shaping us as well. But one of the important things that I think that a reason I noted that definition is this, is because it emphasizes the reign of God in every aspect of our lives. And sometimes that's what escapes our thoughts and our conversations in our studies. See, God's reign is not just over the spirituality on our emotions, our emotional health and spiritual well-being. God doesn't reign over just one day in the week that he says, set that one day aside, and then we gather together for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, and then everything else is, you know, outside of, of God's purview and control. God is not just over the th- things that you value most, and so therefore I value these things. What does God say? How should I live those? God is sovereign and has the right to rule over every aspect Of life, every aspect of our individual lives. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says that there's not one sphere in this world over which Jesus Christ doesn't look at and point to and say, mine. And that is true geographically, and it's true in our lives, and it's true in terms of our relationships. The fact that God reigns in every aspect of our lives is a reminder to us that the kingdom of God does not come and then try to fit neatly into my life. In other words, I have my life all ordered out. I have certain plans, certain ideas, things that I want to do. And then I receive Jesus into my life, and so therefore I need to find a place for him. And then he shapes certain aspects of my life. The kingdom of God is God reigning over every single thing, every single aspect of my life, and then calls me to be part of what he is doing. And so the kingdom of God is massive and is tremendous. And it has implications over everything that we do, every relationship that we have, our schedules, our finances, our families, you name it. The kingdom of God, God has the right to determine what is real, what is true, what is good and the way that we are to live. When we pray, your kingdom come, this is what we're praying, whether we are aware of that or not. But, you know, we have a problem. I know I have a problem. And I suspect some of you, most of you, probably all of you, have that same problem. My problem is this. I'm not sure I really want God to rule and to reign in every aspect of my life. It's not just my problem, but that was the problem of our first parents as well. One of the things that's true about the kingdom of God is that the Bible begins and the Bible ends with the kingdom of God, the the kingdom of heaven that is present. God created the world, created uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, to live in perfect fellowship with him. He ruled, he reigned over everything. They had everything that they possibly need. They had tremendous fellowship with God. They had everything. But somehow got the idea that God having control, God dictating everything, was somehow stifling their freedom and their potential for joy. And so as they rebelled against God, in order to kind of claim their own destiny, bringing sin into the world, the kingdom of God was still present, but it wasn't experienced in the same way that it was designed to be. But if you go to Revelation chapter 22 and we see what is to come, we see once again God will reign on earth as he reigns in heaven. But just like our first parents, I just have this instinct at times. See, I have very definite ideas of the way certain things are supposed to go in my life. (laughs) And it's quite annoying at times when I realize God has definite ideas of the way things ought to go in my life as well, and his ideas and my ideas are not necessarily the same. And in different parts of my life, it's come and it's been particularly challenging if I'm going to be somebody who's going to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you do as well. Some of you have probably experienced broken relationships in your life before I met Carolyn, I was engaged very briefly uh, to another woman. I won't go into the details, but that broke off and it was, was very painful as broken relationships tend to be. And so in the process, as it was breaking and breaking up and breaking off, one of the things that I would do is pray, Lord, bring restoration to this. And the Lord had other designs, much better for me, but not what I was praying. My prayer was, Lord, my will be done. Let's fix this. You have all power. You can do this. Bring, restore this relationship, because I wanted what I wanted, and God wasn't coming through. It was only later that I realized that the the reality of the popular theologian, Garth Brooks, comes to fruition. Sometimes God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. But even other aspects of my life as I'm called to follow Jesus Christ and I'm gonna follow where He wants me to go, what if He thinks that the way I ought to go should lead to pain and suffering and perhaps even death? Now some would think, well, that's, God wouldn't do that, would He? I mean, He sent His own Son in order that His Son might redeem a people to belong to Him, that they might be the recipients of all of God's love and God's blessings and be called according to His purpose, right? But think about the father who sent the son, he sent the son to die in order to redeem a people that he calls into his family in order to do what? To live out their lives in order to help other people come into the great purposes of what God is doing in this life. And sometimes that involves death. It almost always involves suffering of some sort because it also involves a pruning, a dying to ourselves in order that God's reign might be more and more in our lives. And I have to ask myself at any given time, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to die? And in any given moment, when I'm not in the pulpit pretending that I'm some spiritual giant, the answer is no. You know, if I have a choice between suffering and comfort, I'll take the comfort. That's the instinct of my life. That's the way that I pray. I can say very honestly that very rarely have I prayed, Lord, lead me into suffering today. It's not something that I desire to do. Even when I pray, Lord, use me, use my life to bring about glory and the benefit to other people in that I have this idea that somehow he'll lead me in a way of wisdom that will be beneficial to you and to other people in my life and will be very pain free for me as well. And yet I've seen in my own life and I've seen in the lives of people who are around me and I've seen through all of history that God sometimes uses suffering and even death to accomplish his greatest glory and to accomplish our greatest desires. I've shared this story before, but it's one that I have to go back to in my mind often. And that is the story of Carolyn's father's death. I guess it was 20 years or so ago he was diagnosed with a, a rare form of cancer that, that uh, usually somebody was uh, at the time would live maybe a year or two. He went into remission for a time, lived much longer, continued to be fruitful in his ministry, leading a church and was uh, one of the highest, one of the widely respected mission leaders in the United States. And then his cancer came back. And as he was isolated at Emory University, it became evident that he was not going to recover, he was not going to live. One might wonder, why are you doing this? He was still relatively young, still tremendously fruitful. And yet his life was passing. story after story of people who worked at Emory Hospital, believers who were encouraged, unbelievers who became believers because of the way that he lived his life and the way that he faced his death. he received, was able to do the desire of his heart, which was to honor God and help people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Not the least of which was his own brother who came to faith later on. So Carolyn's father's father had passed away in 1963, still a relatively young man at the time. Carolyn's uncle, was infuriated with God for allowing that to happen. Grew up in a godly home. Carolyn's grandfather was a godly man. Grandmother was a godly woman. And I'm buried up in this sense because we are, I think it's the 14th generation in a row on her side of the family in full-time ministry. But her uncle, now having lost his father, was angry with God and he continued to be angry with God All those years later, when Carolyn's father went into the hospital, Carolyn's uncle went to stay with him and began for the first time praying. He was praying for his brother to be healed. When Carolyn's father died, the anger came back. He was furious with God, declared there was no reason for hope. He said it a little more colorfully than that, but I don't want to get fired by saying what he said. so and it seemed very, very distant. God had failed. When we moved to the area where he lived close by, he felt the need because Carolyn's father being gone to kind of step in and became a surrogate grandfather to our kids and involved in Carolyn's life and my life. About two years after we moved there, he was diagnosed with cancer—a brain cancer, inoperable. One evening, Carolyn and I went to the hospital, and we didn't know that it was terminal at this point. And her uncle, his name is Bo, said, "I just, I just, we just walk in, the, and here's what he said: I want you to do it, and Frank can do this much." You have any idea what that means? I had no idea what that meant either at that point in time. I knew who Frank was, Frank is Carolyn's other uncle who's a Presbyterian minister in the PCUSA. And I said, what? And so he repeated himself, I want you to do it and Frank can do this much. I still had no clue and so his wife said he wants you to do his funeral and he said that his brother can do about this much in the service. Okay, and then, so Bo then says to me, I understand, I now understand how mother and Mac, Carolyn's father, I understood how they had such peace. And he said, now, I want you to help me write a letter because I want to tell everybody that I know. And I said, Bo, I, I want to be clear. Are you saying that you know that you have peace because of Jesus Christ and that therefore you have hope? And he said, that's the only hope that any of us have. I now, I now understand. See, the The way that Carolyn's father lived his life, the younger brother, that itself was probably annoying to the older brother. But the way that he faced his death and the way that he had hope all through that spoke so that at a time when he was facing his own difficulty, that hope then translated to him in a way that Carolyn's father could have lived and preached and not seen happen. Through his death, he experienced the desire of his heart, which was the salvation of his own brother. And yet when we pray, your kingdom come, God, you have the right to determine the way things are going to go. Your will be done. I have to ask myself at any given moment, if I'm gonna pray this, is this what I want? Am I willing to live a life that involves suffering and maybe even death if it brings honor to God and beneficial to others. And praying your kingdom come, your will be done involves that very thing. Going back to J.I. Packer, he makes this statement, when we get down to the business of everyday living, we regularly find that as our will rather than God's will that we want to do or that we want to see happening and we need to recognize that. And so there is a sense in which this prayer that we are instructed to pray confronts us with our own desires, and the more that we pray it, the more it exposes we do want our own way. We do have often this idea that somehow, of course God's going to baptize my plans. As if God doesn't have any ideas of his own. We are constantly struggling with this same problem, the same challenge, the same erroneous thought that our first parents had, that if God is in control and his will is done, somehow that will stunt the possibility of joy and, and, and hinder our freedom and our flourishing. And We need to be reminded over and over again that freedom, fulfillment, and flourishing only come when we are in submission to God. And the kingdom of God changes everything. And I suspect that most of the people, most of you who are part of our church, we understand that, that the kingdom of God has its challenges and God will do what God wants to do. And, and he comes in, and we understand the implications of change in our life and in our values. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Many of us recognize that it'll change the rhythms of our lives. Probably involve more studying the Bible, more communicating with God through prayer. It involves participating in God's community and participating in regular church attendance. And God reshapes us in all of these ways that we can enjoy the fellowship with God. That's part of what it means for God's kingdom to come now But I wonder if we necessarily are as conscious of the socio-political implications of praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, as we are about the personal transformation that the kingdom of God brings. You see, in our tradition, or some would say in our tribe, we have a tendency to ignore or downplay the socio-political aspects of God's kingdom coming. And we need to be reminded that when Jesus came, and as we see particularly in, in Matthew chapter four, if you were to back up there, he came proclaiming the kingdom of God, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus came in that image there is, and he is coming and declaring the kingdom of God is here, there is no parenthesis there where it says, You know, paraphrasing, hey guys, I'm here. And I'm going to show you a way to make your life much easier, much more comfortable. Because that's what I've come for. Jesus doesn't want to just change our spirituality. He wants to change everything. He even wants to change who you eat dinner with. So the message of the kingdom of God is that light has broken into a kingdom of darkness and light is now driving the darkness out and the kingdom of God is at work and is growing within us. And as it's in us, then it expands. And many of us understand that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in my hearts, that brings changes in our spirituality. In my family, that brings changes in the rhythms of our home. In my work, that changes the way that we work and, and do hopefully to the glory of God and we are blessing in whatever workplace we are in. But what do we think the kingdom of, coming of the kingdom of God means as it pertains to the way that we relate to refugees and immigrants? What does it mean when we pray for prosperity, comfort, so that we can be generous? What are the implications for the kingdom of God coming to the millions of people who are born into system and cycle of poverty that they did not create? What does the kingdom of God look like there? When we pray for justice to be done in this world, in our lives, in our country. What does that mean for those who are the most outcast? Those who are not like us, whether racially, ethnically, religiously. You see, the kingdom of God, coming to the kingdom of God is not just about making our lives more comfortable. It's about the reign of God, which involves justice and truth and love and compassion. It is not just what we feel that leads us to do stuff. It transforms the way that we think, the way that we look at the world, the way that we relate to the world, the way that we act in the world, it's a calling to come and to die to ourselves that we might see real life. And it has a lot of implications beyond what we tend to think. And yet Jesus says, Pray this. Pray this regularly. This is a part of our prayer life. Pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so often I have to stop and say, if I'm honest, yeah, I don't really want to today. But I get comfort from this. I'm not alone in that. As I've had to face this week, how little I really want the kingdom of God to come as God sees it my mind turned towards a garden, not the original garden, but a garden in Gethsemane. With the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew fully aware of what he was volunteering for, came to give his life. And now as his life was about to be taken, his mission was about to be accomplished. He is communicating with God. And he says, if there is any other way, Lord, take this cup from me. In other words, I'm not the only one who struggles with what God wants to do and the pain that sometimes goes along with that. That's comforting. But the heart of Jesus Christ is evident in this, and we are the beneficiaries of it because he has an attitude that God is calling us to. When he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, we're called to pray this prayer. We're called for the kingdom of God to come, to consider all the implications, not just for us and our spiritual lives and our relationships, but the way that it will carry out injustice in our community and mercy to those who are in need and the reaching of the nations. The kingdom of God is not just in our little bubble here in Williamsburg. It is everywhere and it brings transformation to everything. And the fact of the matter is sometimes you and I don't want it, but we also are in process, and one of the powerful things about this prayer is not only are we participating in what God is going to do by praying this prayer, but the more that we pray this prayer, even when we're confronted with what we don't want, it begins to change us as it exposes our desires, which sometimes trump God's desires we have an opportunity to repent. And we recognize in the kingdom of God, repentance is not a curse, it is a blessing, it is a gift. We are able to say, Lord, I recognize my heart is not right. And so even though this is what I want, what I want is not what you want. Nevertheless, Lord, I submit to you, not my will, but your will be done. And the more that we pray through this and pray this, our hearts are changed, our hearts are transformed. And more and more, we desire what God wants, not only for our lives and for the lives of the people who are closest to us, but for God's glory. It's related to. It flows naturally from hallowed be your name. How is God's name going to be hallowed? Because when his kingdom comes and his will is done, but you and I who are the followers of Jesus Christ, the beneficiaries of what he's done, we can't and shouldn't be praying this prayer that God's going to impose his will on everybody else when we who have already been redeemed don't want to do his will now. And yet we're often there. And so I read this passage, and I'm confronted with my own hypocrisy and my own selfishness, and and yet the hope that is ours, because not only did Jesus identify with me in his weakness, but he also shows me how I am to pray, and then let my heart be transformed to become more and more like his, because not only did he pray your will, but he followed through with what he knew to be the will of God. This is a prayer, and I'm way over the allotted time, which is the danger of putting these things together, and boy, you don't know what I cut. Anyway, um, so. I wanna challenge you. As individuals, I wanna challenge us as a church, that we pray this prayer, not as ritual, But that we pray this prayer for our church. We pray this prayer for our city. In Williamsburg, as it is in heaven. We pray this prayer for the nations. On earth, as it is in heaven. And allow God to change you. To broaden your vision. To humble you. And yet in the end, to see the promises of God always bear fruit. Because as the kingdom of God comes, you and I flourish. May the kingdom of God come. May his will be done. In my life, in your life, in God's church, and throughout the world. Father, to you be glory. To, be, to you be all honor. To you be all Praise. To those who have experienced your love in Christ, may we change and may we find our joy in your will, delight in your presence, and in doing what you call us to do. May you be honored not only by our words, but by our hearts and our lives. To you be all praise and glory. Amen.